You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, good evening. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 34. That's Mark 5. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through verse 34. And obviously, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and tonight, we come to the account of Jesus healing a woman with a flow of blood, or as the King James Version called it, the issue of blood. And that's what I grew up with, so that's probably what you're going to hear me refer to it as. The woman with the issue of blood. Uh, now, I had some stuff that I was going to say uh, for my intro that I've just now decided to scrap. Uh, hear me out on this. You can know about doctrine and you can know about Jesus and about what he's done, but not yet really understand who he is. And I'm not saying that that makes you um, an unbeliever, but I think sometimes we can, we can, again, know about Christ. We can know about the doctrine of justification and about his propitiatory atonement and about his resurrection that justifies his people, but not really know him. And when I say that, I mean know his character. And know what he's like. Right? Like, who is he? What kind of character is he? What kind of person is the Lord Jesus? And I bring that up because if we get that wrong, Jesus is, is the image of the invisible God. He says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. If we get his character wrong, then we do not understand the character of God. Because Jesus is the self-revelation of God par excellence. And that's what this chapter teaches us. This chapter teaches us about who Jesus is, the character of Jesus, and it is a compassionate character. The Son of God is a compassionate God. But in our text this evening, we're going to learn about a woman. And in hearing her story and seeing what Jesus does with her, we're going to learn something about who Jesus is. And this woman is an unnamed woman of no great renown, she has been sick for 12 years. Not only that, but as we're going to get into later, she's been ceremonially unclean for 12 long years. She's been an outcast, unable to go into God's presence in the temple or join the life of the old covenant people of God. And we're going to see this woman, by genuine faith in Christ, reach out and touch his garment and be healed of her disease and uncleanness. And in, and in looking at this, we're going to learn that Jesus is able to heal us of our spiritual diseases, our, our sin, and make us clean in God's sight. And that he'll do this to all, or rather for all who come to him in faith. But not only are we going to see that Jesus can and will do these things, but that he's glad to do it. Some of us, I think, sometimes think that Jesus begrudgingly forgives us. <laughs> or that Jesus begrudgingly saves us, but we're going to learn in this text that he gladly welcomes those who will come to him. That's the kind of savior that he is. He's glad to save unclean sinners. But a quick word before we begin. Uh, I feel like I need to clarify this, not that this is an issue in our church, but it's just something that we need reminded of in our culture, uh, or at least Christian subculture. Evangelical is too broad of a word. I'm with R.C. Sproul. We need to call ourselves imputationists and stop calling ourselves evangelicals. It's too broad. Um, but this passage is not about how you can receive physical healing. Just, just want to throw that out there before we get into it. That's not what this is about. 
Neither this text nor any other text in the Bible promises believers that we will receive bodily healing in this life if we just have enough faith. That's not what this passage is about at all. We are promised that in the life to come there will be no sickness, no death, no sorrow, and that we will receive imperishable glorified bodies, and we praise God for that. But you are not promised this side of eternity that you'll be physically healed of your diseases. And I bring that up because Jesus tells this woman in verse 34 of our passage that her faith has made her well. But that does not mean that God promises to heal everyone if they will just believe hard enough. Right? This is a passage, that verse specifically is a verse that prosperity gospel preachers and other like-minded heretics have taken and absolutely twisted and contorted in order to make money off of the sick, poor, and aged. And it's disgusting. Right? This woman... Her, her healing physically is to give us a symbolic example of what Jesus can do spiritually to all who come to him in faith. Right? As with all of the miracles of Christ, her healing, her receiving healing, is a sign. It's a miracle that is meant to point us to the spiritual reality of salvation and the forgiveness of sins being made clean in Christ through faith in him. All right, just want to throw that out there. This is not about you living your best life now and <laughs> believe hard enough and you'll be healed of your diseases. If that was the case, there would be no Christians who ever die of their diseases. Right? Furthermore, why did the Apostle Paul have eye problems when he got older and a whole lot of other things? You tell me Paul didn't have enough faith to be healed? Give me a break. Get out of here with that nonsense. All right, but tonight we're just going to walk through this passage verse by verse as we always do. And we're going to see this woman's condition, this woman's faith, this woman's healing or receiving healing, this woman's confession and fear. And then we're going to see Jesus' compassionate response. And in looking at all of this, my prayer is that you and I would be encouraged to come to Christ in faith, knowing that he can and will save us. But more than that, that he's glad to forgive us. He's glad to make us clean. Every day, as we come to him in faith, he's glad to receive unworthy sinners who will come to him in faith. And we need to hear that lest we forget the nature of our Savior and what kind of a God that he is. Now, if you would, as a sign of respect for our God, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 34. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side... A great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? 
And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is God's word. Let's pray. Great God of mercy, we come before you this evening and humble ourselves before your holy word. We ask that you, by your spirit, would teach us. Help us to focus. Help us to be still in our hearts that we might learn from you. Please illumine the scriptures so that we would understand them and digest them and have them applied to our hearts because, Lord, even the simplest things are often not applied. Help us. Teach us more of who your son is, our savior, the Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would do this so that we might worship you with deeper affection and greater understanding. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, just throwing this out to you, this sermon's incredibly simple. And it's usually the simple stuff that we forget. So follow me on this and rejoice in the simplicity of the gospel and that you too can be made right with God through faith in Christ. But our setting, right, our text this evening starts with Jesus back in Capernaum. He and the twelve had traveled from the region of the Gadarenes, uh, where the demoniac was, back to Capernaum by boat after Jesus healed the possessed man, right? And now a new account begins. Mark tells us that a great crowd gathers about him as Jesus gets out of the boat. And no doubt many people were coming to him as always to be healed, And as this crowd is swarming around Jesus, a man of very high reputation, a ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum, a man named Jairus, and yes, that is how you pronounce it, very strange name, Jairus comes to Jesus and begs him to come and heal his daughter who is on the brink of death. And immediately, as is the character of our Lord, Jesus agrees immediately to go and help this man. So our Lord is on the way to Jairus' house to heal his daughter and save her life. That's the setting for this evening. It's a rush to get to Jairus' house. Time is of the essence. His daughter is dying. She's not long for this world. And that's where we're going to leave Jairus. That's where we're going to leave his story. And we're going to pick up on that next week. And I say that because as he and Jesus, surrounded by this huge swarming crowd, as they're on their way to this man's house, there is a big interruption that I'm sure Jairus did not appreciate. Right? And we'll get into that next week. But this is where we meet the woman with the issue of blood or the flow of blood. And here we are in verse 25 and 26. We're introduced to her. She is a nameless woman in a hopeless condition. Let's read again. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. To really appreciate this woman's condition, how deep it it went and how awful it really was, we need to understand some things about Old Testament ceremonial laws before we go uh, any further. In, In the Old Covenant, God had given the people of Israel many different ceremonial laws, right? And many of those laws have to do with being clean or unclean. Most of you are very familiar with the dietary law, right? Pork, pigs are unclean. You don't eat that stuff, but this food over here is clean. But more than that, Many of those laws have to do with actions or situations that render a person unclean themselves. Now, I want to be clear that 
just because someone became unclean does not mean that they had committed a sin. Here's a couple of examples. Under the old covenant, touching a, a dead body made you unclean. But it, you have to bury the dead. And burying the dead is no sin. But touching a dead person would make you unclean. So the act of burial would render the people there unclean. Another example, giving birth to a child made the woman unclean. As we saw in Luke around Christmas time, she went to the temple for her purification after having Jesus, right? Um, but it's not a sin to give birth. It's actually a good thing to give birth. But nevertheless, the woman was unclean for a certain amount of time afterwards. Now, these ceremonial cleanliness laws were set up by God in such a way and were so extensive, as you can see in just those two examples, that it would be impossible for you to never become unclean. Just living your regular life, you were going to become unclean at some point. And when you became unclean, you needed to be ritually purified, right? Usually ritual washings and things like that were what was prescribed by God in order for you to become clean again. But while a person was unclean, during the time of their impurity, they were not fit to engage in formal worship in the tabernacle or the temple, depending on what, time, what era they lived. And they were not fit to engage in the life of the community of God's people until they were made clean again. They would have to separate themselves from others until they were ritually clean. And in the meantime, if an unclean person touched clean things or people their ritual impurity would be passed on to that thing or that person. So if you were an observant Jew, you avoided unclean people, right? And the unclean were also to avoid you as well, or at least make it known that they were unclean before going into public places. Now, these laws were meant to highlight something and teach something to the Jewish people, right? They, they were meant to teach that there is a great gap between the holy and the unholy. That's, that's the big lesson of the cleanliness laws. These laws were to remind them every day, because it penetrated almost every aspect of their life, these ceremonial laws. They were meant to remind them of the great gap between God and mankind. That the unholy is not allowed in the presence of the, un, or of the holy God. I almost blasphemed. I almost called God unholy. How awful would that be? It was meant to teach them that unholy, unclean sinners must be made clean and purified in order to come before God or participate in the life of his covenant people. These laws served as a constant reminder of sin and the need for forgiveness. And remember, you will become unclean at some point in your life. The laws were designed that way. It was meant to be a reminder to everyone at least at some point in their life, many times over, most likely, that they needed to be made clean how? According to what God has prescribed. According to his word. They had to do the ritual that God prescribed to become clean. It was a great reminder of their need to be cleansed by God. And this woman, our text says, had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now this is what former generations would have called ladies' problems. Right? It's a female problem. What normally happens once a month to women has been a constant in her life for 12 years. 12 years. This most certainly would have left her sick and anemic. She has some kind of disease. Imagine enduring what she endured for 12 years. That's a long time to suffer with any bodily disease. Her frustration and fatigue must have been extreme. 
Not only that, but the text says that she had suffered under many physicians. Right? She hasn't gotten better, though she has seen a ton of doctors. And just a little FYI for you. First century doctors were in some ways with some diseases no better than magicians. Right? No real medicine would have been used to treat her specific condition. There was actually one where a woman would go at a crossroads, and I think she had to hold a, a, a glass of wine, and someone was to come up behind her and scare her and say, flow of blood be gone. I'm not kidding. Like I read that in the commentary. That was actually a first century remedy for her issue. No better than magicians. Many foolish rituals were used, and obviously none of them helped her, and they were expensive. She had spent all of her money. So desperate was she to be rid of her disease that she spent everything that she had. She's got nothing left now. Maybe she's become homeless, the text doesn't say. But she is absolutely impoverished because of this disease. So here is this woman, sick, tired, I'm, I'm sure tired of being sick, completely destitute, She's tried every remedy that the ancient doctors have given her, and instead of getting better, she has, in fact, gotten worse. I think about how crushing that that would be. Nothing is helping her. Again, imagine how she felt. Really try to put yourself in her shoes. She had to have felt completely hopeless. No human means have been able to help her. No one could help her. But more than just her physical sickness and poverty, let's use those holiness laws we were talking about. According to Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 through 28, this woman has been ceremonially unclean the entire time. For 12 years, she has been unclean. And I don't, I don't think that we 21st century Gentiles really understand what that means. This means that she could not marry, according to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 18, or at least nobody would want to marry her or, according to the tradition of the scribes and Pharisees, her husband would have probably divorced her by now, if she had one. She, she is not allowed to participate in the religious life of Israel. I'm fuzzy on this, just to come clean with you. Maybe she would have been allowed in synagogues, but maybe not. I'm not quite sure on that. But she's certainly not allowed to go into the temple. She's not permitted to go into public places without first crying out that she and all that she touches is unclean. This woman has lived an isolated 12 years. Isolated, lonely, poor, helpless, and hopeless. Her uncleanness has destroyed her life. You can imagine how this would be for her. The dirty looks that she would receive from people who knew her condition. And sometimes we read the Bible and we forget that these are people. These, are, these aren't stories. These are real accounts. I'm sure people looked at her with eyes that said and maybe mouths that said, How dare you get close to me? You vile woman. Think about how people would make room for her when she walked into a place for fear that she would touch them and that they would become unclean as well. This woman is a complete outcast. She is banished. That word struck me as I was studying. This woman is effectively banished from the community until she is purified. And her flow of blood never ceases, at least never long enough for her to be made clean. In her state, she is permanently cut off from the community and formal worship of God. Dr. Steve Lawson put it this way. She is a walking billboard for sin. A walking billboard for sin. Unclean, unfit for the temple, unfit for the community life of God's people. 
Brothers and sisters, this woman's condition serves us as a striking picture for sin. And I won't belabor the point because I think many of you can see it already. Sin makes us unclean. It makes us dirty and unfit to dwell in the presence of God. It cuts us off from the people of God. It makes us unfit to be numbered among his people is what I mean by that. Sin spiritually impoverishes us and leaves us with nothing to bring to God except disease and filth. Sin leaves us hopeless. Our glad rebellion against God leaves us hopeless in and of ourselves because by our sin we are unclean and we cannot make ourselves clean. We can't make ourselves righteous. So great is the power of sin. And no human being can make us clean either, can they? I I wish that we would just trumpet this in the evangelical church in America, that no amount of self-help or moral reformation of character can take away a single sin or render you any more clean. But worst of all, as I said earlier, sin cuts us off from God. And it makes us objects of the wrath of God, deserving of eternal hell. It makes us objects of his holy hatred as he hates sin and the one who commits sin. Read Psalm 7. He says he hates the evildoer. Sin makes us unclean and brings about the curse of the law. And the kicker to that is that the law doesn't give us the power to be made clean. It just tells us what we should have done. Sin separates us from God and leaves us in a miserable condition. Makes us vile in his sight. And again, we cannot clean ourselves up. On our own, we are just as spiritually hopeless and desperate as the woman in our text. I hope that you see yourself that way. I mean that. That apart from Christ, and I pray that you are in Christ, but that apart from him, should God leave you on your own, you are just as hopeless as the woman in this passage. Oh, if we forget that, we will become Pharisees. What then can make us clean? As the hymn says, what can wash away our sin? What can bring us near to God? How can we, unclean sinners, be made clean and fit to dwell in the presence of the holy God? It's nothing in us. I promise that, just like there was nothing in this woman. But there is a ray of hope for her and us, or rather, I should say, a bright, shining sun. Verses 27 and 28, she had heard the reports about Jesus. She heard the reports about Jesus. She's heard about him. This is her hope. She's heard of a man who can heal her, who's even cleansed lepers. Right? A great miracle worker who preaches about the kingdom of God and who has shown divine, or displays of divine power. She's heard that there is one who is able to make even the most unclean people clean. Oh, would you hear this today? That the Lord Jesus can make the most unclean sinner clean. To hear the report about what Jesus has done and can do gives even the most vile sinner hope, doesn't it? It gives me hope to hear what he's done, to hear that he's obeyed God in place of his people. What good news he obeyed for me. To hear that he's taken the wrath of God in place of his people on the cross as their substitute. What good news that he's taken the wrath of God away from his people. To hear that he was raised from the dead as the first fruits of his people so that we'll be raised to eternal life. And the best part of this news is to hear that anyone can become one of his people if we just look to him in faith. This is hope for us. 
Jesus is the hope of the unclean sinner. But this woman, she, she had heard about what Jesus could do, and she believed it. Right? She, she didn't just hear the report. She believed what she heard. She has faith. That's one of the big points of this passage. She had faith, genuine faith in Jesus. Right? Faith for the sake of faith does nothing. But faith in Jesus is an amazing thing. We see this in verse 28. She said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. If I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. She trusts what she has heard to be true. She believes that Jesus has the power to heal her and make her clean. Notice she says, I will be made well. There's no doubt in her mind, right? At least, at least the text doesn't show us any. Right? She wholeheartedly believes that Christ can do for her what she needs done. She believes that he and he alone can do it. Bear in mind, all others have failed her. She believes that Jesus alone can give her new life, so to speak, that he alone can take her disease away, that he alone has the power and authority to do what no one else can. He can give her life. But the highlight here is on her faith. Again, there's no doubt, at least not any that I see in the text. And from that faith, she genuinely believes that he can do this for her. He doesn't just believe that, she doesn't just believe that he can do this for other people. But she believes that he can actually heal her. So from that faith, she seeks him out. She goes to him in faith. It says, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. In faith, she reached out to him. She reached out and, if you'll allow me to sound like a Puritan for a moment, she touched him with the hand of faith. She believed. Her trust that he could do it led her to express that trust by coming to him, timid as she was, because she went up behind him. Her faith was genuine. She was afraid, but she believed. Weak faith in a powerful Savior saves sinners. Fear mixed with faith saves sinners. She believed, so she went. And now we see the woman's healing, verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. In an instant, this woman was healed. Again, Mark's favorite word. Immediately, she was made whole. She reached out and touched the hem of his garment and was clean. Twelve years of misery was gone in an instant. Over a decade of scorn and isolation is over. She is now fit to enter into God's temple. She's now fit to worship him. She's now fit to live a real life among his people. How beautiful a thought. In an instant, she has went from desperately unclean to immaculate. Immediately the flow of blood was dried up. This is a picture of our justification. Right? Our right standing with God, our being made right and clean in His sight by faith alone in Christ alone is instantaneous. It is an immediate declaration by God as soon as the sinner places their trust in Christ. It's an immediate declaration from God's mouth that says, You are clean. You are forgiven. You are saved. You're right with me. You weren't, but you are now immediately. Notice that this woman didn't have to do anything after she reached out to Christ in faith, did she? There was nothing for her to do. She was healed. There was no money needed. There was no ritual for her to do. There was no good work that Jesus further required her to do to receive her healing. No, she, just like us, was made clean by faith alone in Christ alone, and it happened instantaneously. 
Right? This account screams that all we must do is believe on Christ and we will be saved. There are no meritorious acts for us to do. Faith is the necessary and sufficient grounds for our right standing with God. And again, faith in Jesus. Trusting that he can save us and that he indeed has done it. But something beautiful for us to see is that when the unclean come to Jesus in faith, they are made clean. Again, you think, well, you've made that point already. Hear me out. I want to go further. (laughs) Under the law, when the unclean person touches a clean person, the clean person then becomes unclean. That's how the law worked. If you're unclean and you touch a clean person, they're now unclean along with you, but not under grace, not under the new covenant. That's not how the covenant of grace works. Rather, when the sinner touches Jesus in faith, Jesus makes them clean. Jesus is so pure that he communicates healing and cleanliness to the sinner who touches him. This woman's permanent impurity by the power and mercy of Jesus becomes permanent purity because he gives it to her. It's as if her uncleanliness has been transferred to Christ and destroyed and his purity is transferred to her. This is the gospel. The unclean one touches the clean one. And instead of making the clean one unclean, she then becomes clean. This is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him to become sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange visually represented for us with this woman. The unclean sinner. Her uncleanness put on him. His cleanness given to her. The righteous for the unrighteous. This is the gospel. He heals the sinner who comes in faith. And he makes the wretch clean. But then something kind of strange happens. Right? Jesus stops walking. The whole crowd stops. And again, we're going to get into this next week. I'm sure J. Iris was angry about this. His daughter's dying and that's where they were headed to. But the whole crowd stops. And Jesus recognizing that power had gone out from him, power to heal, turned around and said, who touched me? Who touched my garments? Now again, this is a good time for us to note, Jesus is truly human as well as truly God. His human nature is not omniscient, and sometimes he operates from his human nature, other times he operates from the divine nature, and at this time, obviously, he's operating from his humanity since he doesn't know something. He doesn't know who touched him. It's a great mystery, the hypostatic union But he did feel power, healing power that came out of him by faith. He felt power go out from him and to someone else, and he wants to know who it was. Note this. He wants to talk to this woman face-to-face. He wants to have a face-to-face encounter with the person he heals, so much so that he's willing to stop, even though J. Iris wants to keep going on to his house because there's an emergency in his home. He wants to have a face-to-face encounter with the person who believes in him. He wants to know this woman. He wants her to know him. To not just receive physical healing, but he wants her to come face-to-face with him so that she might know him and know what he is like and know him deeply. So that she can know what kind of a savior that he is. So that she can have assurance that she's actually been healed so that she can be in contact with him and be in relationship with the one who healed her. 
Note here that Jesus is a personal God who actually desires his people. He actually desires his people. He wants, as cheesy as this sounds, but I, I pray that we would not turn our reformed noses up to this. He actually wants a relationship with those who come to him in faith. He actually cares about his people. Dare I say it, he loves his people individually as well as corporately. Jesus doesn't just do good for them and then send them packing. He wants to know the ones that he has saved. How astounding is that? First, that Jesus would save sinners at all. But then even more than that, that he would actually desire to know you. You know what kind of a you that you are. I'm shocked half the time that people want to know me. The Almighty God wants to know his people. That's astounding. So Christian, you should rejoice that Jesus actually cares about you and wants to know you. He desires you to be in communion with him. What a privilege that we have. And now we come to see this woman's confession and her fear. Jesus says, who touched me? And he's looking around intently at the crowd. Verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She tells him the whole truth. She confesses everything to him, everything that we read in verses 25 through 28. She tells him about her sickness, about her uncleanness, uh, uncleanliness, about her poverty, how she has suffered, how nobody could help her, how doctors have tried, but her condition grew worse. She tells him of her great desperation and her loneliness, how she's been cast out of society and how her life has been ruined by this disease. And then she expresses her faith in him. That she believed that he and only he could heal her. And that believing she came. She explains that that is why she touched him. Because she believed in him. If I could put words into her mouth, I imagine it went something like this. I, I heard that you could heal me. And I believed it. And that's why I touched you. I hope you're not angry. I snuck up behind you to do it because I'm unclean and I didn't think that you would want me to or allow me to touch you. Nobody else does. I was afraid and I am afraid. She tells him everything. But verse 33 tells us that she came in fear and trembling and this caught my attention and made me weep. Why is she so afraid? Why is she afraid? I think that she's afraid of what Jesus might do or say to her. Remember, this woman has been unclean for 12 years, a walking billboard for sin. She no doubt has been treated like trash for 12 years. Nobody wanted her around. Nobody cared about her. She was poor, lonely, and sick. No one wanted to touch her because she would make them unclean. And she just touched a holy man. You know what the Pharisees were like, right? The allegedly holy men of their day. Self-righteous. Believing that they're better than everyone else and higher than everyone else and they can't be bothered with the needs of others. And she just touched a holy man. She's probably thinking to herself, have I made him unclean? I know that I'm healed now, but have I made him unclean? Will he be angry that I came to him? That I've gotten this close? that I dared to touch him? Will he ridicule me? 
Will he yell at me? Will he hurt me? Will he do to me, an, or what, we, what will he do to me, an unclean sinner who dared to touch him? I think that she fears that he is going to cast her out of his presence and maybe even revoke her healing because she, an unclean person, dared to touch him. But I'm convinced that she only thinks those things because she doesn't know him yet. She doesn't know him. She knows of his great power. She knows of his ability to heal and she believes that he can do it, but she doesn't know him yet. She doesn't know his character. And this is what I fear that we forget sometimes. She doesn't know that Jesus is compassionate towards the unclean. That he gladly accepts even the most wicked and vile if they'll come to him in faith. Indeed, he is the friend of sinners. He accepts all who will come to him in faith. He's not like the rest. He doesn't shy away from the unclean. Rather, he welcomes them, and then he heals them. He's most compassionate. He's a kind God, and he beckons the unclean to come to him and be made clean and healed. He's not angry with this woman. He's glad that she came. He's glad she came. And we see this in his response. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Daughter. Your faith has made you well. He doesn't scold her. He saves her. What God is like this? He doesn't scold her. He saves her. No one else wanted her, but he did. Oh, the Christian that you would see, sinner that you would see, that Jesus loves his people. He loves the unclean sinner who comes to him in faith. He wants the one that no one else wants. He wants the ones who are hopeless. That's when he shines the brightest. He wants the ones that no one wants. He doesn't shy away. In fact, he welcomes them as family. He calls her daughter. By coming to Jesus in faith, she goes from being an outcast, an outsider, to being the greatest insider that she could have ever imagined. Reminds you of the hymn, Oh, Can It Be That I Should Gain. (laughs) She's an insider. She's part of his family. He shows her tenderness and accepts her. By faith in him, she has joined God's family. She's clean now, and her healing is permanent, and she's made well. By faith alone, in Christ alone, this has happened. And then Jesus tells her, go in peace. Right? What a word. Go in peace. She now has peace with God. In the final analysis, that's what matters the most. She has peace with God, as Romans 5.1 says. Now that we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, go in peace. You are made well. And that made well is actually the word sozo. It means saved. He says, your faith has saved you. That tells us that something more than physical had just happened that day. She had had her sins forgiven. Right? Her, her faith must have been deeper than just, he can heal me. Or, or, or maybe, upon realizing she's been healed, she came to understand he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, and she believed in him for salvation. But regardless of how it happened, or in what order, Jesus says that she is saved. She savingly believed upon him. And this reminds us 
Here's one of the concluding thoughts I have for you. That even the most unclean sinner can be saved by Christ. So you should be encouraged because you're an unclean sinner. And that's all the qualification you need to look to him in faith and be healed. He's merciful. Everyone in this room, children, you can be saved if you will look to Christ in faith. Trust him that he will do it. But my second thought, I'm cutting out a lot for the sake of time. A second thought, in addition to the fact that Jesus saves sinners and he'll save all who look to him in faith, even the worst. I want to speak a word to the believer. And I've already made this point, but I want to make it again. Jesus is kind and compassionate to his people. He's kind and compassionate. Does he get angry with this woman? No. He doesn't get angry with her. He has mercy on her. And he pities her. And he saves her. That is the character and demeanor of your Lord to, toward those who come to him in faith. He takes them in. I want you to know, Christian, because I know many of you with weak faith and weaker consciences, who even the slightest sin pricks your conscience, and I praise God for that, but I want you to know something. Christ has not grown sick of you. He calls you a family member. He loves you. He does not despise you in any way. He is not angry with you so long as you look to him in faith. No matter what correction needs made in your life, no matter how you've sinned, even recently, no matter how you've sinned, he accepts you and he takes you in. So Christian, be encouraged. To the believer I'm speaking to, Jesus is not angry with you. He's not I need to hear this. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Jesus is not angry with you. No matter how many times you come to him in faith and repentance, he is not angry with you. No matter how many times you come to him over the same besetting habitual sins, no matter how many times you fall, no matter what sins you've committed, even after coming to him the first time to be saved, he is not angry with those who come to him in faith, desiring to be made clean and forgiven. He's not angry with them. I, I know that some of us here, even now, worry that eventually Jesus' kindness is going to wear out. I know I've thought it. We worry that we've sinned the same sin too many times and that there must be a cutoff limit to his grace. That is not true. He has more grace than you have sin. I promise. Jesus does not shrink back in disgust from the unclean. Rather, he is glad that they come to him. So hear me, Christian. If he had gladly accepted you when you first believed, what makes you think that he will not continue to show you the same compassion when you come to him each day in faith and repentance? It doesn't make any sense. He is kind. And he loves his people. He will not scold you for coming to him, nor will he send you away unclean. In fact, he says in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And that's a promise for you. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. So here's your exhortation. Come to him in holy boldness. 
knowing that he is glad when the unclean come to him. He is glad to wash you clean again and again and again each day as you come to him in faith. So come to him. He will take you in always. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you. That you are merciful to us in Christ and Christ alone. That you do not grow weary of your people. As you say in Hosea, how can I forsake you? How can I abandon you? You're my people. God, I pray that you would help us to hide this truth in our heart. That the Lord Jesus is compassionate to the unclean. And that you, through him, do not justify sinners begrudgingly. But that you're glad to take us in and change us. And that you're glad to make us clean afresh every day. We thank you that your mercy has no bounds. And we pray that you would help us to honor you by not abusing grace but by walking in obedience to you because we love you. And God, how could we not love you for such a great grace that you've given us in Christ? We love you and we praise you and we pray all this through Christ Jesus, our compassionate Lord and Savior and Master and King. Amen.